0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Scottish Independence Podcasts. We're delighted to have a guest with us today, Marian Robertson. Hello, Marion. Thank you so Hello. much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. It's good to be here. Great.
0: And the reason we got together today was that the three of us attended a meeting entitled For a Scottish Republic. It was organised by the Scottish Greens. It was also attended by a member of our republic and also a French journalist who Brought a really interesting dimension, I thought, to the whole question of what is a republic. First, just throw it open. What was the thing that um, most struck you about that event?
2: Well, there were a few things. I mean, one thing that got said quite near the beginning, I think it was Patrick who talked about what his response had been when the Irish president, Michael Higgins, went to Holyrood to to address Holyrood. And and apparently it had all been arranged, you know, these things I'm sure get arranged way, way ahead. But as it happened, he was there about a week after the Brexit
0: vote. Mm. And here's Patrick Harvey from his opening statement at the Greens Republican meeting.
3: Michael D. Higgins, the president of Ireland, had been invited to come and address the Scottish Parliament. This had been in the, in the diary for a long, long time. It had been, it had been long time planning. Uh, it wasn't you know, kind of particular reaction to, to, to the, the events around the Brexit vote, but he had clearly not only thought long and hard about what he wanted to say about the relationship between Scotland and Ireland, uh, and about our place in the modern world, about our, our long history as neighbours, he'd also reacted to this cataclysmic Vote this Brexit vote that he knew Scotland had voted against just, uh, I think it might have been a week and a half, two weeks or something between, and he'd rewritten this speech uh, to take account of this vote and to, to contemplate and to provoke us into what it meant in that moment and what would it mean going forward. He wasn't doing it in a party political way, This is someone who was an elected politician, before that he was a poet, but he's now the president of Ireland uh, and not doing this in a a party political sort of polemic way, but in a provocative and a thoughtful way. It was about a 40, 45 minute speech, I think it's still on the Scottish Parliament website if you you care to go and have a look, and every five or ten minutes it went up a gear and it engaged the audience really, really emotionally and powerfully. Uh, it talked about the challenges of previous generations, how we'd come through challenges like uh, like world wars, how they'd impacted us and shaped us as peoples and societies. It talked about how we were facing the modern age uh, and the challenges, around modern communications, around economic turmoil, around things like Brexit and how do countries cooperate with one another on the world stage. And he talked about the challenges in the transition to a sustainable society and how we can make this possible. And every few minutes, I went up a gear and it became even more engaging and powerful as a speech. And then the next week, the Queen came and spoke to us. And she wasn't unpleasant. There was nothing nasty about it. But it was five minutes of, hello, I'm the Queen. This is the Parliament. I like Scotland. It's very nice. Goodbye.
2: <laughs>
3: there was nothing. I mean, there was no substance. There was nothing to engage with. And some people might say, entirely appropriate, because the Queen shouldn't be making a political speech. But there is, there is something in between this bland constitutional ceremony and a polemic party political speech, there is something in between which Michael D. Higgins captured uh, in his 40-odd minutes of of speaking, which is to embody the ideas that we all share, that bring us together, that are not part of party political division and and, and disagreement, but embody something that we share that that expresses who we are uh, as countries. And Scotland doesn't have that. Scotland has a vibrant and lively and sometimes polarised democratic process. It has its own parliament. I wish we had the ability to make more decisions in that parliament, but we have that democratic level. But we don't have the ability for the people of Scotland to choose someone who embodies collectively who we are and and to speak in that more uniting way uh, that, that the President of Ireland managed to capture on that day. And so I think, as well as objecting to certain aspects of what the monarchy is and how it operates, I, I, I really miss, and I think we would be so much richer with what we don't have. The, the opportunity that's lost of not having the opportunity for uh, the people of Scotland to choose a head of state not as an executive president like the U.S., and not merely as a bland ceremonial figurehead rubber stamping things, but someone who can express something real and passionate about who we are as a society, not in a party political way, uh, but in the way that uh, that that extraordinary uh, politician, poet, Michael
2: D. Higgins, manages for Ireland. He was just making that comparison between... (laughs) What we are used to in a head of state, and what the Irish are used to in their head of state, and I, mm. I was, I was really, I was really kind of taken with that. And I, I'm pretty certain he said that that speech is still available on Hollywood TV. So I'm going to oh, have a, I'm going to have a me listen too. to it.
1: Yeah, what about you, Marion? What was your standout moment? Well, I think, um, I think Marion has stolen my thunder as well because um, <laughs> I, I actually put it into my note, my notes. <laughs> go and go and listen up to to Michael D. Higgins.
0: And here's a clip from that fabulous speech by Michael D Higgins. We'll link below.
4: Scotland has long been a source of illumination for the other nations of the world. I spoke of this at the University of Edinburgh yesterday when I was awarded a, a, a Doctorate of Laws honoris causa. But whether it is the lighthouses of the Stevenson family or to the dazzling early promise of that early period in philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment, with its trust in reason and its grounding in the early period in a balance between science and ethics. Ireland, too, has for long been an outward-looking nation, committed to the principles of internationalism and multilateralism. Yesterday I said in the university yesterday evening, universities are remembered for the ideas they produce, allow and release into the world. And that's the key issues of our time. Global development, global poverty, climate change, building peace and the achieving or the prevention of conflict and the resolution of conflict. These all demand all of our engagement and those of us with our different capacities and histories and resources must challenge ourselves to come up with solutions to the unresolved issues of global poverty, food insecurity, desertification, unsustainable levels of debt, distorted trade, and well-documented abuses of power. We have, in recent years in all regions of the world, seen the consequence of unsustainable economic models which have fomented instability, widened inequalities. We recognise that we live in an unjust world where those who consume are not the same as those who suffer the consequences of excessive consumption, where the burden of climate change falls all too often on those least equipped to bear it, where conflicts rage while the outside world looks on, seemingly at times indifferent, a world that trades in the rhetoric of reason while living with irrationality in unaccountable financial markets and speculative economic flows, and that allows a near impunity for massive ecological devastation, visited on the poorest peoples, and particularly on vulnerable indigenous peoples. Insatiability, far beyond the wealth of nations, and indeed of course the theory of moral sentiments, was the greater book, eight years earlier, of Adam Smith. And the insatiability has been unleashed with consequences that have flowed from a fractured relationship between nature, science, economy, and ethics. The quenched voices of the spirit and the heart that informed political economy at its best moments at those glowing moments, as I think in in the early Enlightenment, including its Scottish moments, they are a mere echo now dismissed as normative and therefore easily excluded from discourse that is narrowly utilitarian and intolerant. We may be at a turning point. The Sustainable Development Goals, which are recently agreed upon by the United Nations, are of course an opportunity for engagement, and they contain an urgent exhortation to action. They call for new economic and development models to be brought forward, ones that are aimed at ensuring that development, be it here in Europe or in Africa, serve the basic needs and human rights of communities, rather than being subservient to some unrestrained and unaccountable financial markets without accountability. Assumed ideologically to be self-balancing, Taken with the Paris Agreement on climate change, governments and parliaments now have a blueprint towards which to direct the radical shift in thinking that is so pressingly needed.
1: He was a, a consummate communicator. Mm. I think that's what he came across. Um, Higgins is a communicator and he, the way that Patrick described it, he sort of built it layer upon layer until you were at a kind of peak a peak sort of um of the moment and um it just sounded like you had to listen to that so i must do the same as yourself marlene because yes. it did sound like the guy really embodied the spirit of the nation and i think that's what we yes i mean the queen queen everybody seemed to respect her a lot of people respected her but it was so transactional i mean everything mm. is very kind of prosaic and, and formulaic um maybe maybe that's just the way she was as a public persona and when you actually spoke to her personally which i have never done and never wanted to i have to admit um uh, it would come across as kind of cardboard maybe it should be better than just the cardboard cut out of the queen which you see in in tesco lobbies all over the country i never warmed to her as a an individual, or certainly not as a as yeah. sort of a figurehead, but yeah. Michael, Michael sounded as if he was a real <laughs> show-stopping communicator. So amongst everything else, I think Lorna said at the beginning, what kind of characteristics might we want in a president? And that was well, something um, I think would be, first up was a communicator of some description, um, somebody who can really cut across the messages that, that embody the, the Scottish spirit. Yeah.
2: yeah. One one of the other things that came out of when the Irish president Higgins Higgins was mentioned was that um his function one of his main functions is to protect the constitution protect the Irish constitution and and he can return legislation back to parliament if in his view it goes against the constitution and that's another function that well we don't have it at all in in the in the UK. Um, because we don't have a written constitution, but that will be something that's really important once, uh, once, we, once we do have our own Scottish constitution. I mean, one of the other things that struck me was, and I think, again, I think it was Lorna who's taught quite a bit about this, <laughs> U- using her mum's... Views on, the I don't know if Laura's mum knows how much we now know about her views on the monarchy. But and very gently and kindly, if you're if you're watching uh, this is later, <laughs> but uh, she was making the point that you know people will say of of the UK of the the, the monarchy in, in Great Britain that you know it's it's it just quite a lot of good and it's not as if uh, they have any power or anything and you know they're kind of figurehead kind of constitutional monarch, and and then Laura sort of came through that saying. Well, maybe that's true as regards out-and-out power, but they have immense, immense influence.
0: And this is Lorna Slater, co-leader of the Scottish Greens.
5: Now, my parents are big fans of the monarchy. My parents grew uh, grew up in England, uh, but now live in Canada, because they see the monarchy as a quaint harmless anachronism. In their mind, we've taken away the parliament, you know, we've taken away the parliament's taken away the power of the monarchy. They just sort of dress up in funny costumes and it's quite nice to know they're around, you know. Um, And they consider them to be harmless. But the question I have is, in the context of where we are in the world, inequality, climate emergency, is enormous wealth ever harmless? Is vast wealth harmless? And we talk about that a lot. Can we afford billionaires? How much is too much? And I am of the opinion that vast wealth is harmful, that it creates a distortion in the power dynamics, that it distorts democracy, that you cannot have vast wealth and effective democracy living side by side, because people with vast wealth can distort that democracy, especially if they are the monarchy who have special privileges and, and you know can write, can write dodgy letters to government or can ask ask for well, not, don't don't make me tax or do environmental things on my estates. And you know that is not an effective democracy. That is not harmless, and it is absolutely not trivial.
2: So that in itself is something to think through, do you, do we, you know, is that what what we'd want? Is that what we really want even for Great Britain, never mind for an independent Scotland? But the other thing is that that immense influence is not seen. It's it's hidden behind layers of, you know, lawyers and um, what can and can't be said publicly. So it's not just immense influence, it's private influence. Mm-hmm. And, it's like... Uh, it
1: Non-disclosure agreements, you know, what Lorna and, and Patrick mentioned at the start, as ministers, they have to swear that they'll never divulge anything that, that goes on in, in conversation, written or otherwise, um, regarding uh, their ministerial duties, because you, you've sworn this allegiance to this figurehead, and we know that there's things go on, there's, there's definitely tax and land issues that have come to the surface through back channels yeah. about what's happening in, in certainly Scotland and and Bermoral when it comes to paying taxes for things. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing that was mentioned before I forget was right at the beginning, uh, I think Patrick said about, about a lack of accountability.
3: If we think that democracy is the legitimate means for holding power accountable, for making decisions as a society. Why on earth would the pinnacle, the, the head of state, the highest office in the land, uh, be the one that's exempted from that democratic principle? Uh, there may not be hard political power, Uh, attached anymore in the way of passing legislation or uh, enacting uh, policy. That's done by government and the monarchy is supposed to just rubber stamp it. But there is a huge amount of unaccountable influence. And because it's unaccountable, people are quite rightly suspicious of it. Even when there has been no attempt to misuse that influence, the
1: question remains. The question can't even be answered. That's an immense thing to have no accountability to your subjects or your sub your subjects have to be accountable to you but not the other way almost um but we can't ask questions about about the monarchy. We're just got to sit here mute mute subjects, which in this day and age is is just an, a, an abomination I think It it is really, when you put it that way, it it is a very one-way street.
0: And when you think about when they're making these subtle behind-the-scenes interventions and suggestions and things, for whose benefit is that? You know, almost certainly for their own interests. It's not because we think you ought to be doing this. I mean, if, if I was King Charles right now, the idea that, you know, I would be inviting people from all over the world to see me crowned in charge of a country that's in such a state with regard to the poverty, inequality, cost of living crisis, the state of the institutions. And that's just merry England, you know, never mind trying to
1: lay, lay claim to the rest of us. Be embarrassed. Yeah. In the news this morning about Microsoft have said, basically, we, we find it much easier to do business. Strangely enough, with EU rather than th- the UK, and yeah, so really. it's even turning its back in this great um in this great um post Brexit era. Where do we go from here? We might have a beautiful monarch in his um his cash going to get the crown and put on his head, but we don't maybe have a, a future as a as an economy in anything like <laughs> the performance it was before. Although he reputedly
0: is is a a billionaire, so, you know, between him and Sunak, they'll surely last to the end of the month.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm sure uh, King Charles isn't in any danger of, you know, losing his standard of living. Mm. I don't mind particularly if he, as a landowner, say in Scotland, wants to make an objection to something that's going through Holyrood. As long as it's done transparently and it's just up front and it's there along with everybody else's and the legislators in hollywood are free to talk about it and consult their you know constituents about it but at at the moment they're not and and there was that you know recent one about where there was an objection made to um a pipeline going through a corner of the balmoral estate and the the pipeline was to take a a much more sustainable energy um Mm. system to the local village and i mean i Maybe they just, you know, went round the corner and made it a longer pe- pipeline, but that sort of thing, if it's mm. going to be happen, it, surely it's got to be done publicly. You know, if King Charles was sitting here with us, <laughs> um, just, you know, just, you know for, to help, help out Scottish independence, he might be saying that he's restricted in what he can do, especially now as a monarch, and... I mean, it did, he did seem as Prince of Wales that he'd get really frustrated about things that were going on. And, you know, actually, as king, maybe he's got even more of those restrictions on him now. But, you know, that joke always seems to be set in Ireland, you know, and it's, and it's a tourist and they're trying to get somewhere. So say they want to get to Cork or something. So they stop. And they ask a farmer, how do we get to Cork? And he looks at me and he goes, oh, if I was going to Cork, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> just, it's funny you kind of, kind of make kind of a kind of sense that you kind of go oh yeah that's true i wouldn't start mm. from there either But it's, when we're setting up scotland as an indie country well we might have to start off with it being a monarchy but that's not where we're going to be ending yeah. up you know mm. we want to go somewhere else we're not going to be reproducing mm. uh, that
0: and that was quite an interesting part of the meeting wasn't it because it kind of went from this is the stuff we don't want to mm. well kind of what we do want. And then very quickly, right, so what kind of version of yeah. republicanism are we talking yeah. about? Are we talking Trump? No. So what are the alternatives? And I think the standout bit for me was ASSA, I think her name was, mm-hmm. the, the journalist, yeah. French, very interesting explanation of just the fact they're now onto their sixth republic. Well, that had bypassed me, I have to say. I just thought, mm-hmm. it was people our republic execute the monarchy and. Bob's your uncle, but apparently it has evolved a lot over the years, and they're now until their sixth. And this is French journalist Asa Samake-Roma.
6: Obviously, you know, I'm French. France has had, you know, a very complicated history with monarchies. You know, the kings famously ended quite... Badly in France uh, and the Republic. <laughs> uh, when you look at the history of France uh, since it became, you know, the, the states that we know nowadays, uh, republics have only been a minority, uh, and it was a fight. It was really a fight to have a republic. So, for example, if you go back to the 19th century, the Third Republic, um, you know, it came after a big military defeat and the people starting to really, um, you know, clamor. They they uh, invaded. what is nowadays the National Assembly to demand a republic Uh, and the third republic stayed for 70 years Uh, it brought free universal secular education for all Uh, it expanded um, voting rights etc and now we are in the fifth republic which uh, was voted in I think in 19... 58, something like this. Uh, we have a constitution, which is the fifth constitution. We change the constitution all the time. We've changed it I think 24 times. Only one third of the articles uh, of the current constitution are original articles. I think a republic allows for flexibility. It allows to reflect the values of the people, um, you know, of society, the society as it is today, uh, and in times of crisis people discuss the constitution more they want to really assess if things are working out if actually we need to change the rules to you know make sure the Republic is a functioning democracy. and I think this is what is happening in France at the moment. You, I'm sure you all know that there are massive protests uh, concerning a, a pension reform that is really seen as extremely unfair, especially for uh, people who have had long careers, difficult careers for women, especially as well, uh, who you know have to uh, stop working, mostly to, uh, to to raise their children, they have lower salaries, so that means that when they reach pension age, they have lower pensions. So it's deeply, deeply. Uh, unfair reform. People have been demonstrating for months, uh, but it seems that the government and the president in particular is not listening to them. So people are thinking, maybe the president has too much powers, there's not enough democracy, there's not enough participation, maybe we should have a sixth republic. Uh, And people are really Um, This is something that you will hear in um, TV debates, you will hear politicians talk about it, you will hear citizens talk about it, and I think this is, when I think about what it means to be a citizen of a republic, uh, I think that we have this collective consciousness that we are, what binds us is the fact that we are political people, we make decisions together as citizens and the people we elect as head of states. They're just, they're one of us. They're supposed to be one of us. They're just one citizen. They don't like sit above us and we have no deference towards them. Um, And I think this is really, really important and that cannot exist in a, in a monarchy. And I think in the 21st century, when we talk more and more about equality, about fairness, uh, about equal chances, the fact that someone who was just born in the right place has immense wealth, immense privilege, and is supposed to represent a whole nation. I find this very problematic.
1: Is it written into the French constitution that this is the flexibility, the elasticity is there for the constitution to evolve and consequently for the state to evolve? And they they take it so seriously, the French, this business Mm -hmm. of being... Actively, um, active stakeholders in their state. And I, I think that's what I would love yeah, to see. Cool.
2: Absolutely,
0: yeah. It's the same in America, isn't it? It's a very different type of constitution and one that they didn't put a process in place for amending it. So they've had to tack amendments on at the end. But um, they study it from quite early on in schools, they celebrate it, they venerate it, it's their touchstone for lots of different things. Now, might not be things that we would approve of, like the right to bear arms and stuff, but to the American people it does seem to be a hugely important thing. Yeah. And if you look at those European countries that still have monarchies, which tends you know, the Scandinavian ones, Norway's got one, Denmark, Sweden, they have got a much reduced role. It's more of a ceremonial role, but they're in very, very much reduced circumstances. They don't have massive yeah. wealth. They don't play that. They're not venerated yeah. in the way that ours are.
2: Yes, and and those countries, well, I'm not sure of all of them, but certainly most of the country you've just mentioned, they have their own written constitution. They do. And that, that constitution itself, you know, constitutions contain, you know, they lay down the ways in which the constitution itself can be changed. So Mm. all that, so that can happen. And, you know, we'd obviously want that in our Scottish constitution, but in their case, it doesn't involve the monarchy. It happens separately from the monarchy. The monarchy is just there as the, yeah, as the the figurehead, I suppose. And a sort of obvious way to start a discussion if there was a a push to change something you'd think would be a citizens assembly type thing. Yeah. The way that, well, Ireland is so, they've been so successful at using citizens assemblies. Apparently no one I know but apparently it's probably in England say and and seem to really believe that having the monarchy is something that brings the country together. I mean, and actually since the meeting we <laughs> were at, I've I've had that I've heard that phrase said at least twice on BBC news. Really? <laughs> really. And, I'm going, really? and uh, you know, it's like brings it, you it, together it, in servitude. Well, <laughs> no, it brings brings the country together. It's part of a, a way of identifying what it means to be British. I think that's weird.
0: I do think that's weird. And also just every time you hear that it reminds me I do not consider myself British while the current Mm. state of blazing was it Tom Nairn had he not said something about that um, you could tell the state that the UK was in the fact it was fragile because the only way it could bind itself together was with things like pageantry and you know putting on a show for the rest of the world so it's it is actually a sign of weakness Mm, weakness. in many ways and when you think about the that all this Pageantry can take place despite the poverty and the inequality in the streets around you. So I just think it's
1: shameful. Absolutely, mm, it's like let them eat cake all over <laughs> again. And that, and that French lady, you know, on the on the platform, although she said she was kind of amused in a, in a kind of distant way yeah. about, about our monarchy, I, I think she'd be laughing up her sleeve. They all are laughing up their sleeves. At, yeah. Our, the hypocrisy of it, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the exactly.
0: Schadenfreude as well. When you think about, you know, the the impact that Brexit's had on um, and continues to have on society, economy, our place in the world, our self respect, everything. And yet they're still going to put on this pantomime of ostentatiousness and wealth, based mm-hmm. on the idea that we've got a divinely appointed king. I mean, it's just oh, so.
2: Is that a pantomime then? I, I thought it was a deeply. <laughs> you know, I, th- I thought it was a deeply meaningful yes. moment in the in the his, in the You know, I, I mean, I'm I'm completely taken aback. For oh, I'm, I'm so sorry to break it to you, Marley. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you another thing that struck me that um, someone said at that meeting. While the Queen was still alive republicanism was always it was always up against that kind of you know inertia because you know you could fair enough you have respect for the woman and she'd done it for a long time but someone made the point that maybe at the moment there's a well for the next decade or so there's a window of opportunity to bring ideas of republicanism more to the fore and get people engaged
0: this is john hill from the organization our republic
7: during the lockdown period when a lot of people decided to make big changes in their life, a group of people decided, let's form Our Republic and let's try and create something that is more Scotland-focused and focused on bringing about a change in the head of state in Scotland. And Our Republic is effectively trying to do three things. Uh, First of all, what it's trying to do is create a space where those who have a Republican mindset can talk about it. It's a very weird aspect of our culture where every poll that goes out demonstrates majority support for a change in the head of state in Scotland. It is something that is basically agreed upon in this country that we should have an elected head of state. But there's nowhere for us to talk about it. There's nowhere that where the discourse is active and alive. And so we wanted to change that. And so we're trying to create spaces for people to have those discussions. The second thing our republic is trying to do is we are trying to campaign for a Republican Scotland. So we are trying to attend media events, talk to people, um, be a place where newspapers and everyone can come and find out information on how you would go about bringing about a change in the head of state. And thirdly, what we're trying to do is work out how you actually do it because uh, we are in a country with an uncodified constitution, which means that there are not many written rules about how we actually go about doing things. It's all kept in privilege, and it's all kept in this weird amarta where you can't quite figure out how you would go about it. And we're trying to unpick that. How do you actually go about a process of disentangling the power structures that sort of sit over our parliament, sit over everything we do, and allow that access to um, our politicians and our ministers by the crown, by um, the palace, by uh, the king, however you want to put it, that allows them that power and that unaccountable power. How do we start making it more transparent? How do we start removing? So one of the first things we wanted to do, and Patrick actually helped us with this at the time, was we wanted to try and get rid of that swearing allegiance to the Queen at the time when you came into Parliament. Turns out we can't. The Scottish Parliament does not have that power, it's reserved, which is unsurprising in some ways. Um, And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, bring about a change so that even if we can't stop Crown consent, even if we can't stop the Crown from interfering, at least make sure that when they do, it is transparent. Make, treat them like any other lobbyist if they want changes to be made if they want exemptions written into law well okay but the, we get to publish that we get to let people know because at the end of the day transparency is the first point at which we can begin disentangling some of these hidden power structures
2: you know and charles well he's older than i am so you know he's, he's not going to have a long long reign let's hope the guy gets a at least having waited so long gets a few years to do it. But, you know, there's a bit of, a, there's a bit of a, an opportunity to, to talk about these things. So let's hope, that's, uh, let's hope that happens.
0: And I, I think the other, the other thing that um, is rattling around my mind, the, the week before that event, I was at an, a radical independence meeting. And one of the things they were talking about was um, delegitimizing symbols of British state colonial power, that kind of thing. And they we're talking about institutions, and I believe there's a there's a, a petition already to have Andrew removed as the Duke of Inverness, or whatever that title is, but also the Welsh were um, mounted some kind of challenge to the idea that it was an imposed Prince of Wales. And they're also suggesting that we should also challenge the idea of a Duke of Edinburgh. And I agree with that. Why should our country be carved up and handed to the relatives of people that you know, we don't support. But then there was, oh, oh God, what's the name of one of the really young ones? Charlotte, is it? Charlotte, that's
2: William's Andrew's daughter. daughter. Yeah. Princess Charlotte, yeah. Princess
0: Charlotte, right. Yeah. So she was going to be given a title of somewhere in Scotland. And I thought, she's not even at senior school. What possible benefit or role can a, I don't know
2: how old she's she is. Going, eight, she's six. going to be Duchess of
1: Tilly what? <laughs> so, well, I think I could rally the good folk at Tilly Couture against that one. But I'm just glad you haven't asked me who any of these people are because I know there's I so many of them who they are. No,
0: and they all start to look alike after a while, but uh, there happened to be a uh, a tweet from Ruth Watson about something that's happening in Kiri Muir campaigning to have a street called Cumberland Close renamed because it was named after the Butcher of Cumberland, the Slayer of, you know, the, the Jacobite survivors were put to death by him and he routed Highland communities. Yeah, and so they've got after,
2: after Culloden. Yeah. After Culloden. Yeah. And this
0: street is named after him because he stayed the night in an inn that used to be in that street. What does it say about our sense of ourselves that we're going to allow street names named mm-hmm. after people who've killed our
2: compatriots? Yeah, you you wouldn't want that, really. But mm. I also thought maybe a better way to do it is to put plaques up underneath the street name to to sort of say what this guy did. At least have that up for a while yeah. so that people understand it. Because a lot of there'll be a lot of people who saying it, it was uh, you know. Butcher Cumberland won't even know who you're talking about. They no. won't know the context. But uh, there'll be a few places in Glasgow that are like, a Union Street is not going to survive. For years and years and years, I'm just, oh, yeah, I see you in Union Street. I never, I don't go Union Street, the Union. No. But now I do. And and actually, we villages and towns all over Scotland, I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a common I thing you get a Union Street in it.
0: Not in England. It's Scotland that marks the union. Not You don't get union. Well, I'm sure there's a couple, but not, yeah. not in the way that we've got yeah. them. It's like so, having I, Idi Amin Avenue. I mean, how on earth would we be that's, celebrating yeah,
2: something like that. Yeah, something human like that. beings, never yeah. mind which side we're yeah. on? I think it, it struck all of us when we were at, at, the, at the meeting. Uh, one of the questions from the floor was, if you could choose who would be the first president of Scotland, who would you choose? And The answers to, I just, we commented on that, didn't we? Because the the, the names that came up, well, Higgins in Ireland, apparently is a poet in the first place, he's done other things. And then someone else, one of the, the ASA, the journalist, she suggested Jackie Kay, who's a former Scottish macker poet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although if it was her, she'd have to move back to Scotland because she lives in England. Well, Kathleen
0: Jamie, there's another And
2: and it's interesting that, that actually some of the names that were coming up were there were poets and there were writers yeah. and i mm. just thought wow wouldn't that be fantastic you know wouldn't people it? who can tell stories and use language evocatively and positively to help um, you know scots kind of have have more of a sense of of their country i think that would be brilliant That's wonderful yeah. yeah
0: and it just shows you the difference between you know a politician as mm. the leader in the sort of trump mold and a poet you know what, what very different lands yeah. there would be. And for yeah. the for the land of Robbie Burns, why, why would we not have a poet? Yeah. You know, yeah, really yeah, 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 great. It was a really interesting discussion and the entire discussion is on the Scottish Greens YouTube channel and we'll put a link to it below this. Thoroughly enjoyed that meeting and lovely to spend it with you two ladies <laughs> and um, we'll see what comes of our seditious efforts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So thanks to our guest, Marion Robertson, for joining us. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another episode of the Scottish Independence podcast. Catch you later. Bye now.